Welcome to the Brinkman Podcast, a podcast where we talk about the audio drama The Brinkman Adventures. I'm your host, Eric Schilder. And I'm Sarah Boltman. And we are happy to be with you today. We've we've had a good day so far, haven't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been great. I mean, here it's very cold and icy, and but we're safe and dry, and we have not slipped off the road yet. Yeah, it's a little icy. My, my uh, driveway is just a sheet of ice. Mm-hmm. How about your It is, it is. And I, I was considering ice skating on it, but I thought, no, I might hurt myself. One of the cool things we did, a little homeschool project, was we had some water uh, in a, uh, like, bottled water in the garage. And my son showed me that when you bring it out, it's it's liquid, clear water you can see through. Okay. But if you smack the side of it when it's that cold, it, I think the term is nucleates or something like Ooh. that, and it, it freezes. What? Yeah. Like instant freeze. Like, yeah, instant freeze. You can actually see it spreading down. That is cool. So that's pretty cool. A little homeschool experiment when it gets that we'll cold. to try it. So, but we're not here to talk about homeschool experiments or anything like that. <laughs> I mean, we're, it's interesting, but. It, it is. It is. We are going to be talking about uh, a season, uh, actually an episode that's kind of special to me. Uh, it's from season three. Episode 29, it's called Man Up. Man Up. And we'll save the why it's special to me at, at the very end. Okay, sounds How good. How about we do that? So uh, do you want to give us just a little quick rundown, uh, Sarah, about what kind of the episode is about? Yeah, yeah. I love this episode because I was very close to the actual story that happened. So every time I listen to it, it gives me chills. And when I re-listen to this one, I almost cried because, for one, what is happening in the story is very powerful. But for two... Josh did an amazing job acting this, oh, yeah. and it just really gets me every time the way that he is having to push through in a very dangerous situation to save his friend's life. Um, what happens in the episode, I'll just tell you briefly, is Josh—actually, Josh, that's the real name of my nephew, Josh, but Ian Brinkman is who he's playing. Ian Brinkman um, is going on a kind of coming-of-age trip with his dad and a couple guys, and they go— in Alaska, in hiking on a glacier, and um, everything's going fine until Jack Brinkman falls into a glacier, down into a mill hole, and they can't get him out because he's too far down and their rope won't reach. So then Ian Brinkman goes with Anthony, and they have to try to get help, where they leave Mike there with Jack, and they try to get help, and then everything kind of goes bad from there. So... At the end, they're all rescued, and um, the reason this story is special to me is because it actually happened to someone I care very deeply about, and I was actually on the other side of the bay in Alaska when this was going down, and I thought the person that this really happened to was dying, and that was very... It was a very scary moment, but um, after understanding and seeing what God did, it was incredible. So I love this story so much. And... Just by chance, is that person that you're referring to our guest today? Yes, of course. <laughs> of course, that would be true. <laughs> yeah. Joining us from the hot, uh, arid regions of Alaska <laughs> is uh, Jonathan Walker. Hi, Jonathan. Hi. Good to be here. <laughs> uh, we are so glad that you can uh, be here with us to talk about this episode. And as Sarah already uh, spoke to it, it was something that actually happened to you. And uh, we'll we'll dig into that in a second. First, I want to play a quick clip uh, from that episode, uh, season three, episode twenty nine, "Man Up." Go ahead, Josh. My backpack is stuck. Don't jump. I think you're on a snow bridge. What? Ah! Yeah! 
Romeo. We are in the vicinity of Kachemek State Park. Please advise. I have someone named Kyle on the phone, and I'm patching him through. Hello? Hello? Uh, can you hear me? Hello? This is the United States Coast Guard. Sir, where did you see the flares? There's another one descending right now. You don't see it? Negative. We see nothing. I'm looking at it right now with my spotting scope. It's lighting up a boat in, in the middle of Mallard Bay. Mm, repeat. Negative. We do not see a flare. We see a boat anchored in the bay, but no flares. Okay. I can see the helicopter. You're, you're over the boat. Keep heading east. Keep going. A little farther. Oh, okay. You're, you're directly in line with where I saw the flares going down. Okay. Someone is flashing an SOS. Subject is located on the surface of Brewing Glacier. <laughs> and cut and then and cut yeah it doesn't uh it actually continues on very nicely after that so yeah. that was kind of towards the end of it when uh, there was a bunch of rescue stuff going on but we'll uh we'll stick a pin in that uh for a second and talk a little bit about kind of the the trip in general um jonathan uh you did you actually you took this trip and you were with how many people so there were students, uh, three students from the Bible school that I was teaching at, um, and then a couple of their dads had come up from Michigan to visit. Um, and so I did this trip fairly often. I would do it either taking a group of students and taking them up to see the glacier, traversing the glacier. I'd go up with friends and spelunk in the glacier. So I had been up there quite a few times, but on, on this particular trip, I had taken these two dads, um, their sons, and then one other student uh, who had actually been in my youth group back in Michigan uh, with me up to the glacier that day. What, what kind of gear do you have to take along? So what you really need is a, a climbing line, climbing rope of some sort, um, harnesses so that everyone can be daisy-chained together so that if one person were to fall into a crevasse, someone else um, who can arrest their slide, then ice axes and what are called crampons, ice cleats, big ice cleats that go in your boots, are really the things you need to be up there. What happens when you reach a crevasse you can't jump across? So you've got to um, either make your way up further on the glacier and go around it or go down the glacier and go around it. Um, there have been a handful of times that we've just uh, chosen to make our way down into a crevasse that's filled with snow in the bottom go across and then climb up the other side of it. Are the crevasses like unstable or are they pretty solid? Um, they're usually pretty solid. I would typically, I rarely would go on the glacier in the summertime just because the ice is moving so much more or the wintertime. It's a lot more stable. Um, but when you're on it, and especially when you're inside of it, you can hear it cracking and popping as it's moving around. Um, but uh, you definitely want to take precautions for sure. And Sarah mentioned uh, that Jack falls into a mill hole. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us what is a mill hole? So when the water's running off of the glacier, um, often it'll initially seep its way into a crack or it'll pool up in an area and keep sort of hammering away at that area. And it will make these holes in the, in the ice that are perfect circles often. And you can slide down inside of those. And so we would hook guys up on a line, slide them down inside there to see if there was a cave down at the bottom where the water ultimately would spill you know, to the bottom of the glacier and make its way out to the, to the bay. And, oh, man, these caves are just absolutely stunning. I mean, you feel like you're inside a huge blue crystal bowl. 
cool. Um, it's always been my dream to get down inside of one of those and see an entire dinosaur frozen in there or something. <laughs> <laughs> that would be so cool. And that's what you hear Jack, you know, when he falls in, you hear him just amazed at what it looks like down there. Mm-hmm. So it's neat that you, you've you had guys down there actually seeing that. Um, it's kind of dangerous, I'm guessing, but cool that you can do it. Yeah, I mean, I, I figure it's uh, it's not... It's not terribly dangerous as long as you come out alive. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, that's a that's a pretty uh, intense pass fail there. Exactly. Uh, now, did someone on your trip actually fall into a mill hole, or is that just for the? Uh... So not not a mill hole, but he actually we were climbing. We had decided to um, go up uh, this ice face, and but down at the bottom there was a crevasse we couldn't see to the bottom of, and and so as we were climbing up. Um, he went to swing his ice axe and his toe cleats on his crampons came loose and he dropped. Um, and so we're tied together, of course. And as he's sliding down, he hits the ledge that I'm standing on, bounces off of it, goes to the other side of the crevasse, hits the ice and then goes straight down. And so I'm just hanging on for dear life, waiting for him to pull the line taut and, um, and it, it doesn't, a bunch of slack goes out, but it's not tight. And so I'm yelling, his name was Anthony, actually. I was yelling down for him and um, and no response, no response for what seemed like forever. I mean, it's probably just a minute, you know, but um, finally heard him in a groggy voice. I'm okay, I think, but I can't feel my legs. I can't move my legs. Oh, no. Um, I thought, oh, no, he's broken his neck or something. But what had happened is, he had fallen into the crevasse. The snow had all built up in the bottom and he had actually buried himself up to his chest and couldn't move. And, um, had he gone in head first, he would have suffocated before we could have ever gotten him out. But, um, he gone in head first. And so we were able to put ice screws in and rescue him. Wow. So you guys didn't need the helicopter to rescue you. So what actually went wrong on this trip? Because I do know as I, well, I know the story, but can you tell what actually went wrong and, mm-hmm. and, um, kind of what transpired and turned into what we hear in the episode? Mm-hmm. So, um, in, in this particular situation, men and, uh, performs the rescue and whatnot, um, we had actually not spent any time up on the glacier, um, because when we, when we hiked in with the dads and the sons, um, we, we missed the trailhead on our way in. And so we ended up climbing over a bunch of what they call beetle kill or knock down all these trees that have been killed by spruce beetles. And so it took five times as long for us to get up to the glacier that day. Um, and, uh, and so by the time we got up there, it was starting to get dark. And so we played around a little bit on the ice, just at the face of the glacier. Um, but then we started to make our way back and we had a boat waiting for us to take us back across the bay. And I realized, um, the, the dads in particular were pretty exhausted. Um, and I thought mm-hmm. there's no way we're all going to make it back, back over the mountain and to the boat, um, in time. And we need some way to communicate and let the boat know that everybody's okay, but we're, we're on our way. And so I made a couple of cardinal mistakes. Um, I decided that I was going to leave the group by myself. Um, and, and I figured, they hadn't brought all the right gear. So I left my backpack with them that had my climbing gear in it, my cook stove, my water, my cold weather gear, all of that stuff, um, fire starting materials. And so I left all of that with them because they would most likely end up just spending the night out there and 
felt like they'd have what they needed. And I decided to take a different route uh, back and over to the boat. Um, and so the two things that were really the critical mistakes, one, I didn't take my gear with me. Um, and two, I went by myself. I left the group. Um, and we hear in the episode them saying, always take a buddy. And I think we put that in there because <laughs> it didn't happen yeah. to just say to people, don't go alone. Stay warm longer than one person can. Um, <laughs> so I, um, but the other mistake was I, I took a trail that I could see on the map, but I had never actually been on before. Um, and so it's, it's winter. There's a, a storm blowing in. Um, I mean, it's 15 degrees out and, uh, and so I took off with no gloves, a pair of rubber boots, extra tufts, um, and a relatively thin, it's called a stormy seas jacket, a fishing jacket. And because um, I was so hot from hiking and left all my gear with them and headed out on this trail, not realizing um, how steep it was. It, it gained a lot of elevation in a very short period of time. So while the distance looked short, um, by the time I got to the top and realized that the snow had completely erased any trail um, and, and I was exhausted, and um, I realized at that point, I'm in trouble. I, I need to figure out how to get down from the top of this mountain um, uh, to, the, to the beach as quickly as I can. And that's sort of where the trouble began. <laughs> That's where the trouble began. In the episode, we hear that um, two things happen. A Anthony falls into a creek up to his waist, mm -hmm. and that's kind of what starts the hypothermia problem. And also, there are some flares that are seen. Can you talk to us about those oh, things? Oh, and wolves. Yeah. And wolves are in There's there as wolves. well. Got to throw mm -hmm. some wolves yeah. in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so all three of those elements are true. Um, in fact, um, <laughs> the the moon was out that evening, but you could see out on the inlet um, – there was a storm blowing in to the, to the bay, um, Kachemak Bay. And, um, I had seen, I, I couldn't tell for sure if it was a coyote or a wolf, um, kind of wandering around a few different times. And my assumption was he was just kind of watching me, seeing what I was doing. Um, and so at one point I, I came up to a Creek that I assumed and later found out was actually Humpy Creek. Um, and I wanted to get down into the Creek bed um, and just follow that would spill out into the bay eventually. And then I could walk the beach around to the place where the boat was, was sort of my thought process. And so I made my way over to the, the Creek, but it was a pretty significant, I mean, it was pretty dark out by this point, but I couldn't tell how far it was from the edge down into the bottom of that Creek, um, the ravine, but it was a rock face. And so I started to climb down that rock face to get, down to the bottom and, and walk out that channel. And I heard, and I don't know what it was for sure to this day, but something down below scratching around and scraping. And so I had a pistol with me and I, I pulled the pistol out just to fire a couple of shots. They're off, whatever it was. And when I went to put it back in the holster, I was holding onto the cliff with my other hand and somehow lost my grip and fell. Um, the guys actually followed my, tracks to that point later that evening um and from what their estimation was i fell about um 30 to 35 feet um so when i hit ice at the bottom i went straight through the ice um all the way up to my chest uh wow and like bounced out of the ice as quickly as i went i think but you know at that point 
I'm soaking wet now. My boots are full of water. And, um, and it's, and it's 15 degrees outside yeah. and it's dark and it's night. And, uh, wow. yeah, I don't have any of my gear with me. So I had taken one of the other guys, he had like a, like a school bag, you know, backpack. And, mm-hmm. and so I left mine with him and I just took his so he could carry the backpack I left with him. I didn't even look at to see what was in there. He had like a pair of socks and a little bit of cereal in it. And I thought, <laughs> I'm going to die. <laughs> so I actually put, I'm gonna die. I put him on his gloves on my hand. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so um, that, that sort of got me, um, as I tried to make my way out of that ravine, I ended up on the side of the mountain again and just realized if I keep trying to go tonight, I'm going to, I'm going to end up really hurt. That's when I sort of found a log laying on the side of the hill and dug underneath it as best I could and stuck my body in there to retain as much heat as possible. But um, yeah, that's when I really knew I was in trouble. Yeah. I realized now I'm soaking wet. It's freezing cold out here and I can't get off the side of this mountain. I could see the ocean. I could actually see the town of Homer across the bay, but um, I had injured my leg a little bit when I fell down through the ice and um so that's where began what come to explain is just a series of supernatural events wow so talk to us about that tell us about um the flares that that this man kyle now is kyle a real person and did he see flares correct yeah um i, I actually uh went back because i had i had always heard that in the coast guard report um they had addressed this issue of the parachute flares specifically um, and so I actually went back and found the, the trooper report and, uh, just to verify it myself. But, um, so I, I knew I didn't want to fall asleep, but I was extremely dehydrated. Um, I had, I could hear when I laid down underneath that log, I could hear water trickling somewhere, which everything else was frozen. And so I started to dig in the snow and actually this water started to pool up in this hole that I made and I would just drink it right out of that hole you know mud and everything but i i started to get really tired i would doze off and i would have this dream where someone i knew would come and shake me and and wake me up and say jonathan you can't fall asleep right now and um so i'd get up and i'd run in place i'd shadow box a little bit i mean it was cold enough that the water inside my boots was starting to turn to slush um i all i could out you know but um, I had on a pair of fleece pants and, um, and so I would get up shadow box, uh, do jumping jacks, run in place. And somewhere in, in the middle of the night, a coast guard chopper flew in, um, and they flew. What I later found out was that, um, the guys had reported where I was at, um, and, or at least where they last saw my tracks. And the chopper would fly in almost head level with me, searching that ravine I had been in down there. And they had their huge spotlight out. Um, and they would, I mean, they shone it over me numerous times during the night. but just never could see me. I'd wave my arms and, you know, had a white t-shirt underneath that I'd wave and shake the trees. And oh, it was so frustrating. Um, but they searched all night long, uh, flew in numerous times looking for me. And what brought them, what got the Coast Guard's attention was that a guy on the other side of the bay, outside of home, a place called East End, um, had called the troopers and had reported that he had seen parachute flares across the bay. 
and the Coast Guard is required by law, apparently, um, and the troopers to respond um, to that sort of report, which they they told me later. Anytime someone builds a fire on the beach across the bay, they get phone calls, right? Um, but no one else called in. Just this one guy who reported he had seen these parachute flares. Now I'm out there; it's pitch black. The other guys are out there in another location. The boat that brought us over is anchored up out there. None of us shot nor ever saw a single flare. Um, in fact, hmm. when the Coast Guard was flying over, they were on the phone with him, um, and he's saying to them, don't you see the flare? They never saw a flare. Um, never. They searched the boat that brought us over to see if his flares had been fired and nothing. Um and so wow. no one but this one guy ever saw a flare, but he led the Coast Guard chopper directly to the other guys to pick them up um, uh, based on these flares that he was seeing. And so in the Coast Guard wow. report, they uh, under that piece, they just left it as an act of God um, because there was no verification of it. Um, and so, yeah, it. Those sorts of events, you know, throughout the course of that night and just the things that I felt like um, the Lord was speaking to me personally throughout the course of that evening about mm-hmm. life and uh, purpose and uh, my relationship with him, um, uh, his hand was clearly in it. Wow, that's amazing. And it's it's interesting because you guys would not, you probably wouldn't have called for help. You thought those guys up there were fine and you didn't know you were going to be in that situation. And um it's just amazing. I don't know why God chooses sometimes to do that, but he intervenes at times and just shows himself in such a cool way. And I remember being across the bay and hearing that chopper when all the guys were rescued and we thought you were in there with them. And I remember standing there in the cold and it was dark and hearing this chopper coming across the bay and my heart just leapt with joy, like, they're saved, they're saved, they're saved, they're okay. Oh my goodness. And then... um hearing you weren't in that chopper was very disconcerting. And then that whole night knowing you're over there, we didn't know where you were, praying for you. Um, what was it that God was teaching you? I mean, you had mentioned that. What what were some of those things that you felt he was kind of mm-hmm. bringing to your attention through this? I think it was a combination of things. Um, like you said, Sarah, um, you know, you and my wife, Kitri, were— um, over on the other side. And so when the Coast Guard initially called, they thought they had picked up everyone. Um, and so they got the other guys, you know, used the basket, dropped it down, picked them up in the basket, got them all inside and started to head back and initially believed and reported that they had everyone and then discovered that they didn't. Um, and so, you know, from Kitri's perspective in that moment, when she got the phone call back that they hadn't seen Jonathan for hours, they hadn't seen me for hours um, and didn't know where I was, uh, oh, she was just undone, you know? Um, and, and so, and then there was this, this massive prayer movement, um, that surprised me. People just, uh, praying for me and praying for the guys. I don't think the guys knew how bad of shape they were in until they got back. Um, and, mm-hmm. and they, they actually, a couple of them ended up staying overnight in the hospital, um, when they returned for me personally, I think it was, really two things. One, um, the Lord was dealing with dependency, um, uh, reminding me that I am not self-sufficient, that um, there are any number of situations in which I do not have control. 
um, whether it's by my own decisions or natural circumstances, um, and just reminding me that um, if he allowed me to make it through that night, which I wasn't certain I would, um, but if he allowed me to make it through that night, um, that I was always to be dependent his power, right? The power of the Holy Spirit for ministry, for life. And then the other was priorities um, and uh, sort of this um, kind of arresting of your thoughts that what are the most valuable things? Like if I, I get to live, um, what would I make the first thing I'm going to do, right? Would it be making sure that I have my class ready for the Bible school or would it actually be spending time with my family? What are my priorities and what things, if I had just another day, would I invest in? Um, and in what order? Really spend a lot of time sort of praying and thinking through those things and then spend a fair amount of time uh, also telling God he wasn't doing a very good job of rescuing me. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, Speaking of that, how did you actually get, how did they actually see you and rescue you in the end? <laughs> so... So, like I said, they flew in multiple times during the night, um, and then I would, I would later come to find out that um, the next morning, as soon as it was daylight, the troopers were deploying with their dogs and, and all of that, but then also dozens of our friends were had their own skiffs and boats and were heading over to hit the beach and start combing the hills looking for me. Um, but as soon as I had you know, sort of that blue light in the morning that comes out first. As soon as I had enough light to see, I started climbing off that mountain down a cliff face and then um, and kind of got into the trees. And I was, it's called a delta, but kind of out on these flats um, with a bunch of dead spruce trees. You know, when, when spruce trees uh, get killed by beetles, they typically break off about um, 25 to 30 feet up. They don't break off at the bottom. And so there's all these dead spruce trees around me. I can see the bay. I'm headed out to the bay and the Coast Guard chopper flies over again. And after not having seen me all night long, now they spot me as I'm walking out. And I was like, I didn't want them to even pick me up. I just wanted to finish walking out at that point, you know? And uh, <laughs> well, I did this like a man. <laughs> I'm like, hey, I've got this now. Um, and so they, they fly over me and two things they're going to drop the basket down to me because they can't land because there's all these dead spruce trees standing. And I'm, I mean, the amount of air that comes down off of that rotor is absolutely incredible. Um, and so they're hovering over me, sending a basket down and I'm watching these spruce trees that break off about 25 or 30 feet up and thinking I made it through the night and the coast guard's about to kill me with a spruce tree. Um, like, <laughs> My, my initial thought was one, um, got the basket down, I climbed in it, they flew me back across the bay, took me by ambulance up to the hospital to make sure all my limbs were still working and stuff. Yeah. And you had, you definitely had hypothermia. Yeah. Right. And <laughs> yeah, I, trying to get warm it was, days I, afterwards. It felt like it took weeks to feel warm again. Um, that was certainly the coldest I've ever been. I cannot imagine. I wonder how cold your, your core body temperature got to 
because you were there for hours and hours after being drenched. And I can't imagine. I don't know how you survived. I mean, I really don't. Yeah, I think God was incredibly, so. incredibly gracious. I mean, you look at all the mm-hmm. circumstances in, involved um, and the temperature and time of the year. And um, yeah, God, God was definitely gracious to me. Wow. And have you been back up that way after that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, <laughs> yeah. That's right. You got to ask that, Sarah. You know, you, I mean, I, I went with, I went on a trip with him the next year, actually, and um, kind of to this, to the same glacier. And we had another exciting adventure, which didn't turn into a Brinkman adventure, but yeah. Hiking with Jonathan is always exciting. Let's just say that. <laughs> it was so, it was so beautiful and special, though. So, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people, um, you know, what you said about relying on God, uh, you know, it really strikes home for me because, you know, a lot of people that are, and I'll, I'll dare say, you know, like your adventure types, you know, the kind that are going to be at your, at these stores checking out kayaks every weekend or whatever, mm-hmm. um, you know, that they, they are very, very self-sufficient mm-hmm. and, you know, just even putting that in terms of, okay, they're self-sufficient in the wild, but there are other people that are self-sufficient when it comes to, you know, th- their their money. They find security in money or they find security in relationships or popularity or, I mean, any of those kinds of things. And so I don't think it's just necessarily limited, you know, that that lesson that God taught you, not necessarily limited to life and death situations out in the wild, but but really to all of us uh, to remember that we are not self-sufficient and that the, you know, the saved and unsaved alike are alive by the grace of God. You know, the rain falls on us all. We all have air in our lungs to breathe. And we as Christians have that obligation to make sure that we, we recognize that dependency and, and that everyday graciousness mm-hmm. uh, that we receive. Yeah. I, you know, being a, being a pastor, um, uh, I find, I think it was Jonathan Edwards who, who I read this about, but each time he would ascend the lectern, you know, the old school English lecterns um, at each step on the lectern, as he got up to preach, he would just sort of pray under his, under his breath. Um, I believe in the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. It, it was his way of acknowledging that even to preach anything of value in this moment, anything uh, that bears fruit that remains, um, I'm completely dependent on the sovereign God for that. And I, and I really believe in Alaska in general, I'm going ice climbing actually this, this weekend again. And I think most people who spend any time at sea commercial fishing or they spend time um, out in the wilderness they sort of refer to the wilderness as this sovereign thing, right? Um, they, they say, if you don't respect the wilderness or you don't respect the ocean, then you're always in peril. Um, that, that you must recognize that it has this power um, that you are not in control of and you're always a visitor um, there. Well, I, I, we would say from a Christian perspective, right, that that is the sovereignty of God. Um, at the end of the day, yeah. to take breath in this next moment. I am dependent on him, whether I believe in him or not. Um, it's by his grace that I get to do the things I do or um, lead in the ways I lead or enjoy the things I enjoy. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that's a really good point. Isn't that's there's so a good. piece of scripture, isn't it? They that they go down to the sea and and or ships in big water, uh, they see the works of the Lord uh, and His wonders. So I I think that's a great place to stop. Thank you, Jonathan, so much for being with us today and uh, for sharing your story. And it's really cool to see how your story ties right in with the the Brinkman adventure that we're talking about. And uh, we definitely appreciate it. And uh, we'll, we'll have you back again, I think, real soon. It's so good to have you. Yeah, it's good talking with you guys. Thank you for what you do. Well, thank you very much. And for all of our listeners, if you'd like to learn more about the Brinkman Adventures or maybe check out some audio clips or some behind-the-scenes uh, information, go to brinkmanadventures.com. And uh, you can also leave us a message or uh, contact us from there. And uh, be sure to share this podcast. If, if you got something out of it um, or if you, you think it's worthwhile, you know, share it with a friend or a neighbor. Uh, we'd love to... Uh, We'd love to make sure that that uh, we can bless as many people as possible. Yeah. So for uh, episode 28, I'm Eric Schilder. And I'm Sarah Boltman. And we'll see you again next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.